Season three of Linguavis, the podcast. Okay, and today we are very glad because we have a very special guest. I'm going to read her bio data. So Melanie Gonzalez holds a PhD in an associate professor of ESL and literacy faculty in both the secondary and higher education. Uh, she's also currently serving at her university faculty fellow for global engagement and as a graduate chairperson for the secondary and higher education department. Dr. Gonzalez earned her PhD in TESOL from the University of Central Florida. She has more than 16 years of experience in the field of TESOL and English language teaching. <clears throat> She's also a Fulbright Garcia Robles US scholar in teaching English as a foreign language to Mexico. So, well, how are you today, Dr. Melanie? Very well, thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here with all of you, and I'm really honored to be a guest on this podcast. Okay, thank you. If you don't mind, I will begin with the first question. Okay, well, uh, could you please uh, provide us a brief overview of your academic background, highlighting Kiel Millstone in your journey as a teacher and researcher? Sure. So my journey really has been rooted in my identity and who I am as a person. Um, my interest in languages has really always been a part of me. My family is Puerto Rican American, and so we have always been surrounded by multiple languages and multiple cultures. And although I was born and raised in Florida, both of my parents were really well-traveled, having visited and lived in other countries. Um, I had family in Jamaica, and we would, of course, visit my family in Puerto Rico. Um, so really, because of my family, as I grew older, I often really wanted to befriend any international student that came my way. Um, so... For example, my longtime pen pal is from Germany. Um, we had an exchange student in high school from Argentina and another from South Korea who I became friends with and helped them in their classes. So it really felt natural and exciting as I grew into an adult to get my bachelor's in Spanish language and literature, a master's in TESOL, and then later my PhD in TESOL. Um, so really, it was because of my friends and my family growing up um, that I became really in love with different languages and different cultures. And so that's what I chose to make my career in. Um, so I love working with multilingual students. And um, it's largely because of my lived experiences with my students, my friends, my family that inspired me to apply for the Fulbright Garcia Robles U.S. Scholar Award to come here to uh, live, work, and study here in Mexico. So this opportunity really has allowed me to bridge both my personal and my professional identities. And I hope the story that I share here might allow others to consider some possibilities for themselves to seek international experiences and collaboration. Uh, thanks for sharing, Dr. Melanie. Um, I think you possess a, such a rich uh, intercultural background. And I think that it's very interesting. And we will really want to, to hear from you, like your experiences and that. And I would like to know what are your current research interests? 
like what are you exploring? Uh, for instance, what are your research questions or some motivation motivations that you have? So, as I said, really, my background, I think, forms the basis for a lot of what I'm interested in terms of research. And um, really, the number one question that I have asked others as a bilingual and others have asked me when they're learning a new language is, how do you say this word? How do you say this phrase? And I've often seen the most frustration and I've experienced it myself, um, not when we're struggling with grammar, but when we're really lacking the vocabulary in a new language to really accurately say what we want to say. So it's something that I'm experiencing actually right now as I deploy my Spanish here in Mexico to live and work. And as such, my research interests have really long centered on issues of vocabulary learning and acquisition. However, now that I'm a professor and I'm working in a teacher preparation program, and I have a really important role as a mentor to new language teachers, I really become interested in the journey that new language teachers take as they begin to apply what they're learning in their courses to their actual teaching practices when they're in the classroom with their students. Um, I was really inspired to do this work in a collaboration that I had with two of my colleagues back home in Salem, um, Dr. Francesca Pomerantz and Dr. Kami Kandi, who had some initial findings and they kind of brought me into this area of interest in knowing more about how can we better serve our new language teachers. And, Coincidentally, it's something that we had in common with professors here in the Departamento de Lenguas um, at Universidad de Guanajuato. So um, I've really become inspired by research from Dr. Iracema Mora Pablo and Dr. Martha Langling and the work they've looked into in terms of teacher preparation here in Mexico. So I really feel so fortunate to be here to work with them more deeply and to learn from their important insights into how do we better prepare language teachers for the realities of the classroom. Okay, thank you, doctor, for sharing. Now that you have mentioned some of your research projects, could you offer our to our listeners more insight into the specific objectives and methodologies of these projects? And also, if you can tell us uh, about some recent discoveries or findings that you find particularly exciting or promising, so as a key part of my Fulbright-Garcia-Robles Award, I am working closely with Dr. Irasema on a study into what's called language teacher noticing. And noticing really is defined as a teacher's very close self-analysis of their own teaching effectiveness and how do they go about adjusting their teaching to improve their students' language learning and acquisition. So in other words, when a teacher looks back at their instruction after they've completed a lesson, what events and what aspects of their own teaching do they focus on to change or to try something new, um, really based on their experiences with their students? There haven't been too many studies examining really novice English language teachers' noticing habits. And so Dr. Yerasema and I really aim to see how noticing can help new teachers in Mexico and around the world to become better noticers and analyzers of their own teaching. So the two research questions we're focusing on here is our First, what do novice English as a foreign language teachers notice about their own language instruction and their students learning while they're delivering a lesson? And then secondly, what are the situational and contextual factors that really impact and inform their habits noticing? So 
to achieve this, we're using kind of an old but new research methodology called st stimulated recall. And this is really where participants watch a video recorded lesson of their own teaching. And they pause at key moments during their lesson and they explain and reflect on their uh, instructional decision making. And they do this all while watching the video back, watching themselves and their students during the lesson. So we record, we transcribe all of these um, stimulated recall sessions, and we then code them for emerging themes. So in terms of research methodology, I think this, this method is relatively underutilized because of its logistical complexity, but it really is one of the closest methods we have to ask teachers to notice their own teaching and explain their dis decision making in real time. If you think back to, if you, if you really want teachers to notice what they're doing during a lesson, it's not ethical to ask teachers to stop their lesson while they're teaching to their students and say, hey, can you explain why you did that? That would ruin the student's learning. So stimulated recall and using video bases to prompt language teachers to notice their teaching is really an innovative way to get, get um, new teachers to reflect more deeply on their own instructional decision making. Wow, I can say that this is um, very interesting research. Me as a, as a teacher myself, I can say that, well, I would like to, to do this, like this technique that you mentioned. I think it's a very um, interesting how you can uh, really reflect on your practice, your teaching practice, and try to explain the reasons why you made some decisions and in order to improve as a, as a teacher. So how do you envision your research uh, contributing to the broader academic community's understanding of your field? Um, I don't know, uh, can you share with us if there are any potential real world applications or implications of your work that you'd like to share? Well, because, well, uh, we know that sometimes the um, research is more like abstract However, we can, it's very important like to share the really, the real implications and applications. So, so something that I have experienced as a language, English language teacher and that I see a lot of teachers, no matter the context they're in, struggle with is that teachers really find themselves at the center of so many new competing and even sometimes conflicting ideas about what effective language teaching is and how their students learn. So what we tend to see happen is that they might draw upon what they've learned in their academic studies and their teacher preparation programs to maybe what they themselves have experienced when they were learning a language um, or even to what administrators and colleagues in schools tell them to do and then even to what parents and the students themselves expect from teachers. So um, really the big implications and impacts we hope that Dr. Irasema and I will hope that our study will have well, that it will help our field to really push their understanding of just how and in what ways new teachers sort through all of these differing ideas and differing pressures to form their lessons and then to critically reflect on their teaching and adapt their teaching using the sound pedagogy that they may have learned in their teacher preparation programs or that they have experienced as, as learners themselves. And really, I think the importance here, too, is that I think having an international collaboration on the study will really only enhance the findings and contribute to other voices in the fields to understand, you know, there are cultural implications in how teaching happens. We can't separate culture, identity, language. And so I hope this, this method will help to 
push our field's understanding of, of teachers, new teachers in particular, their reflective practices. Okay, thank you, doctor, for your answer. Now we're going to change a little bit the topic of our discussion. Now I would like to share about your scholarship and duties. Uh, so please, could you elaborate on the Fulbright scholarship and its significance in your academic journey? Also, if you could answer about what specific responsibilities or commitments come with being a Fulbright scholar? Sure. So the Fulbright program was formed in 1946, and it really is an educational and cultural exchange program that is funded by the United States government. In particular, it's funded by a bureau within the United States Department of State. And um, it really operates in partnership with about 160 countries. And its goal is to foster what we call public diplomacy and mutual understanding between the United States and partner countries. So what it does is it provides scholarships, grants to US and non-US students, researchers, leaders, and scholars to really be the faces and the center of this public diplomacy effort, kind of saying that education is the way that we learn more about each other, the world, and realize that we're all in this global world together. So. Um, What's really unique about the Fulbright Garcia Robles scholarship is that Mexico and the United States really have a unique relationship being part of the North American context, continent, being neighbors. And so since 1990, Mexico actually gets its own dedicated team um, to administer the Fulbright scholarships. And the, the team is called COMEXIS, or that stands for Mexico United States Commission for Educational and Cultural Exchange. And what COMEXIS does is they're the ones to over, organize and oversee these scholarships and grants and really to care for the grantees. So the Fulbright Garcia Robles scholarship actually supports both Mexican and American scholars, students, researchers, and professors to carry out their work. Um, so what really my duties as a Fulbright Garcia Robles U.S. scholar in TEFL really include formal duties such as I have, I'm co-teaching and observing classes here at the Universidad de Guanajuato. Um, I'm carrying out the research project with Dr. Iria Sema. Um, I'm also available to faculty and students here in Guanajuato should they wish to have me assist with teaching or any other special projects. But I think that at the core of this scholarship is that it's really about being a cultural ambassador from the USA to Mexico, meaning that I'm really expected to participate in community events. So for example, I'm volunteering at the Sorrentino next week. Um, I'm here to share my experiences as an American with the Mexican people and to really dive in and experience Mexico's cultural and history to grow my own intercultural awareness and bring these new cultural skills back to my classroom and my community back in Salem, Massachusetts. Well, I think that this program is very, like, well, it's very useful to enhance this collaboration and multicultural awareness that you mentioned. I um I was not aware that it existed, actually, so it is, like, uh, something new for me, and I would like to learn more about it. And <laughs> so I would like to ask you, uh, how has the Fulbright, uh, the Fulbright scholarship experience shaped your academic and career trajectory? So the field of English language teaching is really international. It's multilingual and multicultural by definition. Um, English teachers and students all over the world study, live, and work in new languages and new cultures. And really up until now, I haven't had that experience of living and working really long term, no more than six weeks in another country. 
And I've done almost everything else in the field of TESOL. So I felt it was really time to take this leap um, to apply for the scholarship. And really, I guess, more personally, in my own mind, I really couldn't justify being a true scholar in this international field without having such a deep, rich international experience and growing my own intercultural awareness. Um, so that really was one of the big reasons I think that this Fulbright scholarship is going to be really transformational for my work. Okay, now I'm curious about to know what were the particular aspects of the Mexican culture, society, or academia that piqued your interest and ultimately influenced your decision to study and work in Mexico? Yeah, so my choice to come to Mexico is really a combination of so many different factors. I mean, first, it was to collaborate in new ways with my Universidad de Guanajuato colleagues, um, with whom I've already worked with and where we had already started some academic exchanges in the past. Um, so I really wanted to, I was inspired by their work and wanted to get to know and work with them a little bit more. Um, and secondly, Mexico actually has an established academic focus on English language teaching. Um, the MEX-TESOL conference and MEX-TESOL journal are renowned in our field. Um, so I felt that it would be a great, great idea to come and learn from experts here um, to kind of decenter the United States, UK perspective that tends to really permeate our field. Um, so I felt that, that um, I could really push my own understanding of the field of English language teaching, getting to live and work here in um, Mexico. Um, it was also, I, I will say, really appealing to have Comexis as the administrator of the scholarship. Um, I felt that that would give a deeper connection to Mexico than I may have had experienced if I had gone to a country where Fulbright is administered solely through the U.S. side of things. Um, so I really, really liked that there was a team here in Mexico that kind of care for the grants, grantees and um, help us give more enriching experiences while we're here. So for example, like at our orientation, they took us to um, El Museo de Arte Popular. We got to experience the a mariachi band from the Guardia Nacional. Uh, we also went to a Lucha Libre and those things are, the, I think is what Comexis really brought to um, the grants grant side of things that maybe I might not have experienced if I didn't have a, a dedicated team like Comexis here. And then lastly, as a Latina myself, I was really interested in broadening my cultural awareness of a mundo latinoamericano and really seeing the differences and similarities between Puerto Rican and Mexican cultures. Um, it's so fun to speak with friends here about how some of their there's so many shared experiences growing up in a Puerto Rican culture with a Mexican culture but then there are other things that are so unique to Mexico from the vocabulary from the richness of the music things like that that um, are really inspiring. Okay, uh, thanks for sharing. And well, so now we know that you have a very rich cultural background. And so I wonder if you can share with us a little bit about your experience of discovering the University of Guanajuato and how you initially learned about the institution and what factors led you to choose it, to choose it as a destination for your academic uh, pursuits. Yeah, so I've already mentioned that I um, have come to know Dr. Martha Lengling and Dr. Iracema Mora Pablo well. Um, I actually met Dr. Martha about five or six, maybe seven years ago in Salem through a colleague at my university. And um, Dr. Martha actually brought several students from the Universidad de Guanajuato um, in the Maestria and Applied Linguistics to my school, to Salem State. They presented their research, they visited some of our classes. And since I was also 
teaching in a master's of TESOL program back at Salem State. Um, Doctora Martha and Guanajuato students were always coming to my class, classes when they came to visit us. So they interacted with my students and I really got to know Doctora Martha and a bit more about the Departamento de Lenguas um, aquí in Universidad de Guanajuato. Okay, now could you tell us about uh, your academic collaborations or partnerships that have arisen uh, from your association with the Universidad de Guanajuato? Sure. So when the COVID-19 pandemic forced all of the schools to change the way they did things, we all went online. Of course, all international visits stopped because many borders closed. Um, we were really lucky at Salem State. My, my university invested in what's a pedagogy that's called Collaborative Online International Learning, or COIL for short. And this is really where two professors from different countries will link their classes online in order to still have an international experience, even though they couldn't travel to each other's contacts. And the goal was really for, to grow students' cultural awareness and to share similar and different perspectives on a certain educational topic. And so since I had a relationship with Dr. Martha already and my graduate classes during the pandemic were already on Zoom due, due to the health regulations, I decided to give COIL a try with my students. And so I reached out with Dr. Martha and she was really excited to do this project. So we linked both of our classes together for two years. And this is actually how I also met Dr. Irasema, who also joined in with some of her students in this COIL project. Um, we were lucky based on the strengths of our COIL project that our uh, Salem State University also received a grant for international travel. So once borders started to reopen again, um, we used this grant to fund Salem State students to visit Guanajuato in March of 2022. And then Universidad de Guanajuato students came to visit Salem in May of 2022. Um, that led to even further deeper collaboration with Martha Irasema and I, and that we presented this COIL project at AAAL in 2022 in Pittsburgh. And really what my time working with Irasema and Martha has taught me is really to have the, the importance of having a global lens to teach your language or language teacher education. Really, as I said before, so much in our field is from a United States or United Kingdom perspective, but really the majority of English language learning is not happening in those contexts. It's happening outside of those contexts. So when I was thinking about pursuing a Fulbright Award, I really made kind of decentering that US perspective in English language teaching the heart of my project. And knowing the strengths that Dr. Irasema and Dr. Martha brought to this global lens, I requested Universidad de Guanajuato as my placement for my, my scholarship. So I was really excited, happy, and really surprised to have my wish granted to get to be here at UG. Okay, well, I think uh, it's quite interesting and important to create these ne networks of collaboration um, for teacher development and also to advance in the in research. So I think that's very interesting. And also, can you can you share with the audience that maybe they're very interested in knowing about uh, Salem State University? Maybe you can share with us its academic strengths, 
um, maybe its role in your academic journey? So Salem State University actually has a long history of teacher preparation. Um, back in the 1800s, it was only the second of uh, schools in the United States of universities that focused on teacher training in particular. It was called a, the Salem Normal School at the time, which I think in Mexico you use the term normal también to talk about teacher education. Um, so Salem State started as a normal school. So as a result, you know, our teacher education program was pretty large there. It's one of the larger schools within Salem State University. It is a public university. It's one of nine public universities in this in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in the United States. Um, and we are not a big university. We're pretty small. We only have about um, 8,000 to 10,000 students at our university. But something that um, is really unique about our, our school is we're the most diverse public university in the state of Massachusetts. So um, we are actually known what's called an emerging Hispanic serving institution, meaning that we're approaching 25% of our student population at Salem State come identify as Hispanic or Latinx, Latine, Latina, Latina in some way. And um, so really, I think my time here in Mexico uh, is really enriching, I think, for myself, knowing that our university, the population that we serve is largely coming with um, backgrounds in Latino America and Spanish and bilingual settings. So um, I, I hope that I'm going to be able to have a little bit more awareness and a little bit more skills to help our university as we start to become a Hispanic serving institution. And now moving on a little bit of the topic, could you share about your impressions of living and studying in Mexico? For example, can you describe your initial impressions upon arriving in Mexico? both in terms of the cultural shock and your academic integ integration? Sure. Um, so being that I had already a multicultural, multilingual background, I really thought I would be more prepared <laughs> than I was. Um, I, I think for me, my adjustments have been around navigating the living life in my weaker language of Spanish. Um, but, you know, this was really a key reason for me to pursue my Fulbright in Mexico as well. I really wanted to improve my academic and disciplinary Spanish language skills. I do have a good conversational level of Spanish. And so I kind of expected to adapt a lot more quickly to functioning in Spanish, to the new conversational routines, a different accent um, from my Puerto Rican family and the vocabulary. Um, but I still had some challenges. I am definitely getting better now, two months into the to my Fulbright uh, stay. And I really hope this doesn't sound bad, but I recall last month when I was suddenly able to eavesdrop on my neighbor's conversations outside of my apartment um, before someone really had to be speaking directly with me for them to understand. But now that I can kind of hear the gossip from my neighbors around me without really paying attention to them, I feel that that's a language win. I, I feel like I've made it. I'm, I'm starting to see progress with my ability to function and live life in Espanol. Um, so it's a little win for me, but now I can go back to giving my neighbors some privacy in their conversations. Yeah, I think it's like an issue of practicing more with the language. Maybe you were not very used to use it like in the States and... Uh, but you maybe you already have the knowledge, so it's just like <laughs> an issue of practice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 
also, can you share with us in what ways has your time in Mexico broadened your cultural understanding and influenced your teaching and research methodologies? Has have has it have an impact? So, um, most of my students back home in Salem are from other countries themselves, or if they're American, they've had the experience of living, learning, and working in another country. So. Living and working here in Mexico is really giving me a deeper understanding and an empathy for their experiences. What I am learning now and something my students really have already learned is really how much my own sense of self and identity is expanding. Um, I feel that who I am is more flexible now. I'm able to adapt to new situations and contexts. Um, I've also really learned the importance of letting myself make mistakes and fail. Um, so when I struggle to say something in Spanish, or for example, if I understand, if, if I misunderstand those unspoken rules of how you negotiate politely a taxi fare, um, or really more funnily, a more recent example was I mixed up Nieto and Sobrino to talk about my nephew. <laughs> and this was after to a new friend, I mentioned that I don't have children. And so I could see the strange look from my new friend saying they were doing the math, saying she's not old enough to have a nieto. She said she doesn't have children. Um, so clearly they were wondering what was going on with my language there. So it was a little embarrassing to make such a simple mistake of confusing nieto with sobrino, but I'm able to laugh at it now. And I think that that really is giving me so much more experience to just not be afraid to go for it, make any necessary apologies if I mess up. And I think that before this experience, growing up being Puerto Rican American, I used to think of these language failures as a blow to my own identity as a Puerto Rican, and that I was somehow less than um, in that regards. But really now I'm learning to persist and to use these instances as learning opportunities. And I think the connection to classroom and to research is that education tries to penalize mistakes so much from grading schemes to how the pressure is to just, you know, learn quickly and as fastly as possible. But really, I'm learning that if we can just reframe mistakes as necessary for learning, that they're actually a good thing, they really show the brain's ability to test out new knowledge, to make new connections, and revise those connections when we're made aware of them. So you can really believe that I'm unlikely to confuse Nieto and Sobrino again, because I made that mistake and I've learned from it. Okay, thank you. So could you elaborate more about your time in Guanajuato? Can you share any other anecdotes or memorable experience that have left you a lasting impact personally or academically? Sure. I I have to say I'm quite impressed by OXO. Um, I wish I could transport the idea of OXO back to the United States. Um, I am really amazed how you can just do about everything there from shopping, pay your bills, get a cell phone, buy your train tickets. And so, um, but what it really, what OXO is kind of an example to me is how it's a community focused service that they provide. And um I think that, you know, that's one thing I've really noticed about here, the people here in Guanajuato and probably Mexico more broadly, is that the people here really are so community centered. They ask you deep questions. They show incredible curiosity and familiarity from the very first moments of interaction. And actually, this is quite different from the United States 
culture at large, it usually takes a bit more time to work up to that kind of familiarity. Um, and the United States culture often, you know, is more like individually focused rather than community focused. So I think that that is something that's been really impacting me personally. But also in terms of my research, um, I really had been a quantitative researcher in terms of my research and vocabulary for the most part. I was using a lot of statistical methods in my research. But given that the community focused here in Mexico, getting to spend time here with um, the faculty and students at the Universidad de Guanajuato, I'm really realizing how important the qualitative and narrati narrative aspects of research are. You really can't separate, I think, people's stories and their lived experiences and their identities from their work. And especially in language learning and teaching, language, culture, and identity are so intrinsically intertwined. So I'm really fortunate to be growing my research methodology to in expand more into the qualitative and narrati narrative um, realm here. So I really am finding that is it's stretching my skills. And I think that our field of English language teaching can really be impacted by taking a more narrative approach to including voices and people's stories and identities and research. Wow, how uh, incredible is that it also it actually influenced on your methodology, like moving from like numerical data to qualitative. So it's very impressive. And maybe can you share with us any specific insights or anecdotes related to your travels within Mexico that have deepened your appreci appreciation of the country's culture, um, its, its history or social dynamics? Yeah, so um, I think that it's really when, when you go into an international experience, it's all too easy to focus so much on the differences between your home country and, and the country you are, are living in. Um, but what I've been really struck by my time here in Guanajuato and in Mexico is by some of the similarities. And I'll speak kind of specifically of my hometown of Salem and of Guanajuato. Um, Salem, Massachusetts, just like Guanajuato, is a very small but a very vibrant colonial city. Um, it has winding stone streets just like Guanajuato, and there are parts of Salem that look a lot more like you're in the United Kingdom back in England rather than in the United States. And I think in Guanajuato, there are aspects of like the Spanish style that also are still very much present here in, this, in the city. Um, our two cities, too, are really known for tourism born from tragedy. Um, Salem was one of the sites, was the site of the hanging of suspected witches back in the 1600s. Um, while Guanajuato, you have the mummies from the 1800s to early 1900s. Uh, so we kind of share that, that really sad history of, of, of death that has somewhat influenced the reasons why people come to visit and, and one of the sites that people come to our cities for. Um, Salem and Guanajuato also are both important cities in the independence movements in our respective countries. So Salem was the site of a lot of meeting houses for rebels leading up to the US-American Revolution from, um, from England. And um, the US National Guard was also formed in Salem. And for Guanajuato, you have the Grito. It's the site of many important steps towards forming the new Mexico country's new identity. So 
And then surprisingly, this month of October, um, both in Salem and Guanajuato is a wild month for tourism and for visitors. So here in Guanajuato, we're about to see a lot of people come for the Cervantino. Um, but in Salem right now, almost every weekend, our, our population doubles inside, in size because of the witches, the history with the witches. It has become a big Halloween party um, the whole month of October. So we also experience a very busy month of October, just like Guanajuato. Um, and I think lastly, I cannot talk about, uh, you know, talk about my time here in Mexico without my visit to the Museo Nacional de Antropología in La Ciudad de México. And then I also got to go to Castillo Chapultepec. Um, and my visits there just gave me chills. I mean, seeing the history of Mexico and of Mesoamerica and North America resituated within thousands of years of history was just really awe-inspiring. And to really see those threads that still intertwine with our worlds today. Um, I also learned about my own country's complex relationship with Mexico since the early days of Mexican independence. And I really think that it's important for us to examine closely and be more aware of these complex and even sometimes painful aspects of our own histories, because seeing those how those threads can still persist today can really help us to kind of heal together and move forward together. Okay, thank you, Doctor, for sharing these interesting anecdotes. Uh, well, as a last question, can you tell us about how the unique cultural and academic aspects of Guanajuato influence your perspective or contribute somehow into your academic growth? I think um, pretty much it's, it's that more community-based focus of uh, how we approach everything in our work and our research. Um, I think that my experiences here I'm, from seeing how just how quickly the community here is willing to accept a visitor to their university, to their classes um, is just really inspiring. And I think that taking that kind of um, focus and just remembering that not everything is about quantitative numbers, about growing grades, about graduating your programs, but actually how um, we are fostering a sense of community, that we're in this together, um, that sometimes the stories and sometimes even as I shared about my own language journey here in Mexico, how sometimes the failures and the mistakes are actually positive things for our learning and growing. So um, I think that it's all too easy to if you're if you just stay back home and you're the context you know the context you're comfortable the context you're familiar with you might not get that same sense of mistakes actually are good having more questions than answers can really help us to learn more and to seek out others perspectives and others ideas and others ways of thinking and habits are really important to pushing our growth in the field of education education is really flexible and we need to have to adapt with the times. We saw that with the COVID-19 pandemic where everyone around the world was suddenly trying to figure out how do we teach online, which is the best way to engage and just keep people focused um, when there's so much, so much going on in the world. So I think that that pandemic really showed how so many aspects of our lives are intertwined and how community is really important to move forward. Um, and that's something I see as a strength of the people here in Guanajuato at the university. I mean, I have not, not been without nice food and treats from everyone around me here. So I just take that as really just such a welcoming sign um, of, of how important a, a community-based approach to language education can be. 
Uh, well, thank you very much for, for sharing your experience, Dr. Melanie. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to hear from you, your experiences and your anecdotes and about your research, which we will uh, really like to read more about. And we really hope that you enjoyed your experience here in Guanajuato and that you know more about it. Um, and well, sadly, we ran out of time. Um, but really, we thank you for your time. Uh, thank you, Patti, also. And I don't know if you have any final comment. Same as Dulce said. Thank you, doctor, for being here in our podcast. Uh, yeah, I think it was pretty enriching to hear about all your experiences and to know about this uh, intercultural and international relationship between our institution, the University of Guanajuato and Salem University. So thank you very much, much for sharing your experiences. You both, I really enjoyed speaking with you. And um, yeah, I look forward to continuing our, our collaborations and relationships here. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah, and thank you to your to the audience. Um, stay tuned because Applied Linguistics is for everyone and see you in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.